I've been. I've lived in New York City serving there with homeless and addicts, and then I moved to Brazil where I worked with homeless and addicts, but also kids on the street. And then from there, I, I moved to Haiti and lived there for a year, well, a couple years. I did different things. The Lord was just leading me while I was there, but part of my time was spent directing an orphanage of 29 children, 10 Haitian staff on this remote island. Um, you have to take a boat, and it's a long, it's like a half a day travel to get to this village. Um, and at one point during my time in Haiti, the Lord had me, I was invited to come back to preach at a conference in, or lead worship actually at a conference in Chicago. And I had friends there, they invited me to their church. And we did an all night of worship and I think I did like six hours. I was wiped, but I love stuff like that. So I you know, gave it my all thinking we'll sleep the next day. Well then we get home at like seven in the morning and my friend comes to me and says, oh, by the way, I'm inviting all the leaders of our church today over in a few hours, and you're going to preach for us. And I was like, what? How can you do this for me? Like, I'm not prepared at all. And um, anyway, so I panicked, and everyone went to bed except for me, and I sat up and was like, Lord, you got to give me something. Like, I don't know what I'm going to say or do or whatever. And he spoke to me so clearly. He's so faithful. But I heard him say, Wesley, write down all the characteristics of the orphans from those that and the street kids that you've worked with. So I was like, all right. So I take out my journal, and I start writing down all these attributes, characteristics, ways that they normally function that I saw day to day working with them. And I was like, okay, what do you want me to do with this? Like, I don't know how I'm going to get a message out of this. And he said, read through it again and think about the church. And I was astounded that each of those characteristics were ways that we function in the church still. And it all of a sudden clicked that so many of the ways that an orphan in the natural acts and responds in situations, the way that they are, can corresponds to how we are spiritually. And the Bible says that we were all orphans, all of us. Um, before we came into the family of God, which is the church, through Jesus. So when you get saved, you become a child of God, right? We talk about that. The church is the family. We are all children of God. But before we knew Jesus, we were orphans in the world, separated from our Father, uh, out there because of sin, because of the way the world is. And so I've I had heard a lot of people when I was growing up, I had heard several messages on th something called the orphan spirit. And I thought, you know, is this a, something that can be cast off of me? Do I just need prayer and someone's going to cast the spirit of orphan off of me? Or what does that mean? And I never fully grasped it. I never thought I could understand it. And all of a sudden it clicked to me that it's a mentality. There might be an orphan spirit. I, I don't deny that that could be something that you could pray for someone with that. But I think the majority of the time from what I've learned and see seen is that it's a mentality that we all have, it's a mindset that we all have that thinks like an orphan because we were orphans. So in the same way, like a child grows up on the streets, they grow up in an orphanage, and then they get adopted into a family. I hear countless adoptive families say, oh, I'm so excited to take this 
10-year-old into my home. I'm going to give them food and clothing, and it's going to be awesome, and they're going to be thankful for the rest of your lives. I'm looking at Janet because she knows some of these key things that's like, that's silliness to even think that way, but we kind of have this idealistic way of thinking of adoption because it is awesome, right, to take a child into your home and care and love them, but the fact remains that this child that's 10 years old and has grown up on the streets has a lot of learned behavior and a lot of learned mentalities that's not just broken because they're brought into a house and all of a sudden have parents. That child moved location, but they're still the same child that they were the day before in an orphanage or on the streets. They didn't change in a moment. It takes time for that child to change, to understand what family means, to understand what having parents means having structure in the home, having rules in the home, right? That takes time for them to understand because outside the home, they didn't have any of that. And in fact, what they had was abandonment. They had rejection. They were manipulated. They were used. They were beaten, sexually abused. So a lot of these things had happened to them. So rightfully, they build barriers. They build protection walls. They build this thing around them to protect them. So now that you've said, oh, I'm adopting you, a legal transaction in the natural happens, paperwork is signed, all this stuff, they're brought into the family, you're now their parents, but they have no idea what that means. And they've only known people to use them or hurt them or reject them or at some point get tired of them and kick them out. So all the fear, all the hurt, all the mindsets built up, it takes time for that to change, and a lot of unconditional love and patience. So in the same way, in the church, we grow up outside the family of God. We experience a lot of brokenness before we knew God, before we met him, before we encountered his love. And even the fact is, once we came to know him, at least for myself, and I think for many of us, when I came to know Jesus, I did not know exactly what it meant to be his child. I didn't know what that meant or entailed for me. I didn't know what it meant to be a new creation. It was just like things that were told to me, and I went to church on Sundays, right? And that's, that was kind of my, the extent of my understanding. And then as I kept going in the church and growing and seeing, I thought, wow, I have a lot of insecurity. I have a lot of rejection. I have a lot of abandonment issues. Well, where did that all come from? I mean, my parents split up and stuff, but I think even if you grow up in a healthy home with healthy parents, there's something in us that God created us that only he can fulfill. Having great parents is not going to satisfy that need in you spiritually to be accepted. Only God's love can fill that place. And only God's word can transform our minds and renew our minds. So the way that this teaching is set up, we're going to go through seven different characteristics of the orphans. I'm going to share examples from the orphanages or working with street kids in Brazil, and then we're going to talk about how that looks in the church. Though when you hear about it with the kids, you're going to, I think, for me at least, I think, oh my gosh, that's me. Oh my goodness, that was me, or I still function that way. And the whole point is to highlight it and then fill it with scripture so that we know how to change. We renew our minds. So I'm going to read some scriptures here first that talk about us uh, being orphans. Two of the main ones are Romans 8, 15 through 17. 
If you have a Bible, you can open up. But if not, that's fine. If you want to just listen. Romans 8, 15 through 17. It says, starting in 14, actually, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So this is Paul writing to the church of Rome, and he's reminding them, you've not received the spirit of fear. You're not an orphan any longer. You have been adopted in that now you're sons, you're children of the living God. Do you know what that means for you? He's emphasizing, look, wake up, realize what you have, who you are, what he's paid the price for you to come into. And then read in Galatians chapter 4. This is Paul again writing another church, the church of Galatia. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. It says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that they might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. He's saying the same exact thing, right? The key points, you're not a slave anymore. You're not a slave to fear anymore. You're a son through the blood of Jesus. This is why he came, to set you free, to renew you, and to make you a son. So Paul obviously thought that this was a very important message to the church because we constantly fall back into our old patterns of thinking and doing and we have the only way that we can be set free from that the bible says is from the renewing of our minds let's turn to hebrews hebrews chapter 12 oh i'm sorry not hebrews romans chapter 12 Verses 1 and 2, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies, so he's calling us brothers, we're a family, by the mercy of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable. We're changed when our mind is renewed. We have to start thinking differently. And the only way that we renew our minds is with the word of God, truth. We've believed a lie. Our minds are flooded with lies, whether it's directly from the enemy, whether it's from society, whether it's from me, myself, who's putting myself down. I need those all renewed by the truth, the word of God. So the emphasis here is that we need to be renewed to be transformed. If we want to start acting like the children of God, we need to change the way that we think, which will then change the way that we act. 
So for every mentality, I'm going to give a scripture at the end that's going to be something that we need to think about, renewing our minds, targeting where we might not be uh, seeing rightly or thinking rightly so that our actions will follow, will start to change the way that we act, the way that we respond. I have so many different notebooks with notes from different times I've taught this, so I could have had like 10 out here and just been like going down the line trying to pick all the points because the Lord is developing more and more. As I think more about it, I've been understanding more, so it's exciting. But anyway, so the first mentality that we're going to talk about today, number one, is that an orphan's identity is based on what they do. Their identity is based on what they do. Why? Why is their identity based on what they do? Because they're looking and seeking attention because they don't feel loved. Attention is what makes us feel desired and valued. An orphan's identity is based on what they do because they're looking and seeking attention because attention makes us feel valued and desired. So let me give some examples of this. I was working in this orphanage in Haiti, and 29 kids, it was craziness, but we did it. And what happened, though, on a daily basis, where kids were doing things to try to get my attention, because then that will make them feel seen, loved, and valued. Think about it. They've been rejected by their family. They've been re- some of their parents were still alive and dropped them off at the orphanage, had other children, but picked them to go to the orphanage or kicked them out on the street. They've been abandoned, rejected, unloved. And whether the, the intention of the parent was good or bad or whatnot doesn't matter. The pers- perspe- perception of the child is what matters because their perception of what happened is going to create a mentality. I'm not valued. My parents don't love me. I must have done something wrong. They're kicking me out in the street. I need to act better. I need to be better so that they can love me. What can I do to make my parents want me back? What can I do to make my family love me? How sad that it arrived at that point. So this little girl, Dashlene, she was about six years old, five or six tiny little thing, but she would follow around all day, and she would be cleaning everywhere I went. She'd be there cleaning, sweeping. I remember just walking into the little area where we ate, and she's tiny, and she has this huge broom, and she's like looking at me as she's sweeping. Why? She wants me to recognize, see what she's doing, and be like, Dashlene, thank you. You're awesome. Oh my gosh, what a big helper you are. You know what you would do for your own child. If I had a child and they were just cleaning up everywhere, I'd be like, wow, go you. You're wonderful. You know, you just overflow with love. That's what they've been created and designed to have. And because they haven't had it, they're looking for it. So Dashlene would literally be washing dishes and washing the clothes and only to hear me just pour out this love over her. Oh, my gosh, Dashlene, thank you. Wow, what a helper. And then she'd be beaming, you know, this, like, ear-to-ear smile, like, I am the best kid on the world. Like, my mom loves me. She was so excited. That's one way that they seek attention, doing good things for positive affirmation. 
On the other hand, they would do also very bad things for attention, negative attention, or what I would say is discipline. Because when you love them enough to discipline them, you're showing them you love them. You're taking time to spend with them, to care about them, to care about their well-being. So the boys, they would fight like, like warrior fighting. Like they'd find rocks and be chucking them at each other, trying to cut each other, like serious stuff. They'd get so mad. And I would go over as soon as I would hear about it, separate them. Hey, what, did, what happened? What happened? See if the stories match. So what's the solution? We talk through it. We figure out the discipline for everyone, what needs to happen, blah, blah, blah. And then it's done. Why would they do that? Now, of course, maybe they were actually really mad at each other. I'm not discounting that kids get mad at each other and annoyed. But the fact that I would come over and deal with the situation right away showed them that I cared about them. Their parents wouldn't do that. Their parents would beat them if they did something wrong. So the fact that I wouldn't do that and cared about them, they were it all it said to them was, I'm loved, I'm cared for, I'm desired. We have her attention. Now, remember, we're talking natural. We have her attention. Another way that this was shown in the orphanage, this girl, Marilyn, I loved her to death, but she was like 14 years old, 13, 14 at the time, and she would always be hiding like we would be calling all the kids together to give an announcement or we're leaving for the soccer field or blah, blah, blah. And she'd always be hiding. And it's like, where's Marilyn? Where's Marilyn? Always, every day, where's Marilyn? And then we go looking for her and then she'd pop out and be like, I'm here. Why was she doing that? She wanted to be noticed that she was not there. Attention makes her feel valued. So when everybody stops because we can't find Marilyn, she's like, Oh, I'm noticed. Because kids in Haiti, they could leave their home and their parents wouldn't care. Their parents wouldn't even notice that they were gone. They'd come back a day or two later and it wouldn't be a big deal because their parents didn't care. The parents didn't, in Haiti too, the culture, there's not a culture of love for kids. Like kids don't have value there as an entire culture overall. I'm not saying every Haitian is that way. I'm saying a general cultural thing there is that, which is very sad to see that kids don't have value. Um, so that, that wouldn't be, so she was hiding to prove or disprove what she already believed about herself. If they, if they stop everything to look for me, Wow, then that disproves what I think. I think I'm un unwanted. I think I'm unloved. I'm, I think nobody cares about me. So then when we all stop to find her, it disproves what she's thinking. And she's like, whoa, well, maybe someone does care about me. Maybe someone does. Like, look, they've stopped the whole thing. Or it would only confirm what she already believes. If for some reason we didn't notice one day that she was gone because of chaos and lots of stuff happening, she would sit there in her misery thinking, I really am unloved. Nobody cares about me. Nobody notices me. But it's something she already thought. So we didn't create that. That was already there. That was her orphan mentality. And what happened, the situation, is what only served to confirm it. Does that make sense? So do you see how that is? They would do things to gain attention because attention would make them feel noticed, valued, and loved. 
So how does this look in the church? We feel valued only in what we're able to do. When it's taken away from us, or we don't have a position, we feel worthless. We feel valued only in what we're able to do. When it's taken away, I feel worthless, like I have no value. So this has happened a lot in my life because <laughs> my identity was fully based in what I did. I did not realize how much it was. I have different talents that God has given me, different gift set, and I used those to make myself feel valued. I used those to make myself feel secure. So when I was 18 years old, I went to Street Life Ministries, and even though I grew up in a, a fairly healthy home, there was, you know, my parents split up and stuff like that, hard things happened, but fairly healthy. Both my parents loved me, etc. That's not always the case. But because of my spiritual orphan mentality, I thought I had to prove myself always to show that I had value to where I was going, what I was doing. So at Street Life, I started leading worship. I had taught myself a few chords on guitar, and I was like, I'm going to do this. So we had a house of prayer, and I would lead worship. And at one point, the director came up to me, and he said, he took me aside, and he said, um, you know, you're not going to, I'm not going to have you lead worship anymore for a while because um, you need to work on some heart stuff. We're going to work on some character stuff. And I was so mad. I thought, who do you think you are to take that away from me? Because it was my identity. I was nothing without playing music or being in the front or doing something. I, I had no value apart from that um, because the position is what gave me the value. And this can look like in so many different ways. Like this could be in the church where you have ministry, uh, a position. So you say, oh, why, you know, say I'm up here preaching and someone else out there is like thinking in their mind, when's she going to ask me to preach? I think I have a good message. Why doesn't she ask me to preach? Why is it always got to be her or leading worship? When are they going to ask me to sing? Because all my value is wrapped up in what I'm doing. So if what I do is not recognized, if I don't get the attention from it, I feel like I have no value. Or say that position's taken away from you. Like I said for, for David, if that position's taken away from me, all of a sudden I feel attacked. I feel like I have no value. There's no reason for me to be in the church. I'm going to go to another church where I feel more valued, where I'm used more, where they let me do more, because the more that I do, the more attention I receive, the more value I g feel like I have. Does that make sense? The more you do, the more attention you have, the more value you think you have. But your value is only wrapped up in what you're doing. So the minute that's taken away, your value plummets. Our value needs to be in one thing only, the love of Christ. How much he has set a value over us. It can look like this in uh, romantic relationships, where I think my value is so wrapped up in my spouse. Apart from him, I'm nothing. That's unhealthy. That's not godly. Uh, uh, apart from him, 
I am 100% valuable in Christ. Christ loves me. And that even if Tommy were to put me down one day or say something mean, those are hard things. But if my value is secure in God, it doesn't affect who I am. That's a big one. What people say to us doesn't affect who we are. So if you're shaken when somebody accuses you or points the finger at you, where's your value? If you think your value's gone down, has it hurt? Or you're thinking, if I'm not in a relationship, I know Renee's the only single one here, but I think in just a broad, as like an overall, if I'm not in a relationship, where's my value? Our culture speaks that to us, doesn't it? When are you going to date? When are you going to get married? When you're blah, blah, blah. I remember when I was single, that question was like the hottest topic. When are you going to date someone? Where are you going to do this? And if you allowed it to, it could make you feel like you had no value unless you were in a relationship. Because if you don't have a man that loves you or a woman that loves you, then you must be unlovable. If you don't have a man or a woman who loves you, then you must be unwanted, not desirable. Do you see where it comes back? The root of that thing is an orphan mentality that we don't believe our value unless it's affirmed by someone in the natural or some situation in the natural, a position or a ministry or a relationship. And that could be a romantic relationship or just even a normal relationship where I'm seeking attention from someone because their attention makes me feel valued. I'm doing things to make them applaud me. So uh, that's, uh, that's also any way that we serve in the church. Yeah, I'm going to come and vacuum every Sunday, but I'm going to do it just at the time where everyone walking into church will see me so they know that it's me who's doing it, and then they can thank me for it. Because I got to be seen. I got to be known for what I do because that makes me feel valued. Does it make sense? I'm only going to pray when people can see me praying so that I get the attention and the applaud of man for being a prayer person, a person who prays. The fact that we applaud people for doing, giving honor to people for what they do is a great thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't. It's a, it's a biblical principle to do that. I'm talking about the heart motivation where we are grounded in that. Our value is grounded in that. And if that's taken from us, like, hey, I come in, for example, vacuum here, and nobody thanks me, and I'm offended because nobody noticed. Well, are you doing it for us to notice, or were you doing it for the Lord to notice? Whose attention are you after? Who are we doing things for? Who are you doing things for? Who are we desiring to please, man or God? And it will be shown in the way and when we do things and how we seek after it or when we don't receive it and then we get a little hurt and offended. Why didn't they recognize me? Now, When we forget to honor and recognize someone, that's on us. We should be learning better to do that. I'm not saying it's right. But it does sometimes expose the root in us that's grounded in this orphan mentality. So a lot of you know my story where I got sick in Haiti. I picked up a sickness called chikungunya. It was through a mosquito in my blood. 
and normally the the sickness would react so much so that you would wake up you couldn't move the the word itself means to be contorted in pain um they have no they have no medicine that helps it they have no um what are those called shots that can help it be like prevent it they have nothing they have no idea what this virus is they've studied it for years and years and years so you get these times of being 10 days to two weeks where you can't move it feels like all your bones are breaking at the same time if you've ever heard of dengue it's like 20 times the pain of dengue and people can die from dengue but so you could within one year you can experience relapses of that and after one year you're immune and you shouldn't feel any more pain that's how it typically reacts well, when I was there at the orphanage in Haiti, everyone was getting the sickness. It was passing. It was an epidemic at the time. And so all the kids got it. All the staff got it. And in that type of heat, it was very dangerous. It was life-threatening. So we were had some medicine trying to get fevers down because it would be accompanied by extremely high fevers, a rash all over your body, and then you couldn't move. Well, I woke up one morning with it. I couldn't move. They um, it was very scary. I felt very clouded in my mind. The pain was excruciating. I couldn't move, and someone came and just started dumping buckets of water on me to get my temperature down because I was inside a hut at that point. They pulled me outside to get fresh air, and for two weeks I was like that, where people had to feed me, put water in my mouth. It was awful. After two weeks, I forced myself up. I started walking with a cane because I'm stubborn, and I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm here to teach these kids, love these kids. I'm not letting the sickness keep me down. So I would hobble up with my staff to the, the children's home and back every day. Well, I had relapses every month for, for anywhere from one week to two weeks, and so much so that it would put me out on my back. Well, then from October to January of 2014, I experienced nothing. The Lord told me to go home, that I was going to be in the U.S. in New York City from January to September. When I get to New York City, a week into my time there, I start to feel the pain again. And I'm like, dang it. <laughs> so I'm in a bed. I had forgotten to tell the directors. I say, hey, I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you I have this disease. <laughs> and it c at a week at a time, I could be like laid out. I can't move. And they were like, oh, that would have been nice to know. Um, so I was laid out a week, then two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, turned into two months where I couldn't get up. I was th at that point in a wheelchair. People were feeding me. And it was from here down from shoulders down so it was all my limbs and anytime I moved the pain worsened so I just tried to stay still all the time um, at two months the director said why don't you go you need to go to the doctors and find out if something else is wrong because this is untypical of the disease so I got flown home to Boston I went to get a, a bunch of tests done they all turned, came back negative and just that I had chikungunya and that had multiplied in my bloodstream. So what I found out after going to many doctors, um, I found out from a doctor in India who had been studying the disease the longest that I most likely fell into this 3% group of people who when they receive it, it reacts differently in their blood and then they're like this the rest of their lives. It remains, they're wheelchair bound. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not happening. I saw God heal people. Like, that's not going to happen to me. But then it, three months, four months, five months, 
people were praying for me, anointing me. I was having to be fed by my mom, my brothers carrying me to the bathroom to go to the bathroom. It was awful, awful stuff and an excruciating pain 100% of the time. At one point during that time, I remember laying on a bed in my mom's house and I was crying because of the pain and loneliness and depression because who wants to sit with an invalid all day? So I was there a lot by myself. And I'm laying there and I'm saying, Lord, please take me home. If I'm going to be like this the rest of my life, I can't take it. I can't take the pain. I can't take not being able to do anything. What value do I have? That was my question to the Lord. What value do I have? I can't help people. I can't serve. Because at that point, I had been a missionary, different nations, constantly going, serving. And my identity was so wrapped up in people knowing me as the missionary that was serving in Haiti, that was working with children and prostitutes. My identity was so wrapped up in it, and I had no idea. I didn't even see it until I'm laying there with no ability to move, and the Lord speaks to me clearly. And he says, Wesley, what you do does not make you important. Who you are makes what you do important. Say it again. What you do does not make you important. Who you are makes what you do important. This is the analogy that came to mind was that uh, uh, someone who cleans a bathroom for a living, it's not an important job. The job of cleaning a bathroom isn't that important. I mean, we think it's important to keep clean bathrooms, right? But just in general, it's not the, clean, it's not the most important job to clean a bathroom. Nobody notices, but say the king of a village or the president, our President Trump, gets up one day, first thing he does, goes to the bathroom, starts cleaning it. Everyone would be like, whoa, the president's cleaning the bathroom. What's he doing? He must have a reason. What's he doing that for? Newscasts on it, the king of a village, because he's important. Because he's important, he gave value to the job. Does that make sense? Who he was gave it, made that job important, made it worth attention, not vice versa. So the Lord spoke to me, Wesley, you are my daughter. You have immense value. So because you're the daughter of the king of kings, the creator of all things, you have made laying on the bed the most important thing you could be doing right now. This is, has extreme value and worth because of who you are. And it totally revolutionized my world. And I realized how wrapped up my identity had become in what I was doing instead of vice versa. The two things that mark the life of Jesus, I believe, more than anything else. Number one, that he knew his identity Number two, that he walked in humility. Those two things, in my perspective of looking at Jesus, marked his life more than anything else. Because he knew who he was, he could go to the lowest place. Because he knew who he was, he could go to the lowest place. 
just like Philippians 2 says. He humbled himself to the point of death. He even denied his rights as God to become man because he knew who he was. He didn't have a problem with people accusing him or or cursing him or slandering him or pointing the finger at him because it didn't change one thing about him. He knew his identity as the son of God. And he said, because of this, I can wash the disciples' feet. There's no job too little for me. There's no job that can diminish who I am. Our culture from the time we were born up has spoken something different about us. When someone comes up to you, they say, oh, what do you do? Who are you? What do you do? Do you have an education? How much money do you make at your job? Where did you get an education? These are all things that our Western society constantly speaks over us. From the time we're little up, if you got good grades in school, that defined you're a great student, you're really smart. If you didn't, you're stupid. And that's what society told us growing up. That's not the kingdom of God. Each person has immense intricate value because of the way that God designed them, the way that he created us. And it has nothing to do with what we do. So if you find yourself even in introductions to people and you think, I've got to prove my worth. I've got to prove my value. I've got to prove how awesome I am. I have to prove my relationship with God. I have to prove this, that, or the other thing. If you're, if you're feeling as though you have to prove yourself to someone, that's not their problem. That's your problem. That's because we have lack we have not realized our identity and who God says that we are. So if you find those little triggers in you where you're, you're getting offended or you're trying to prove yourself or constantly say all the great things that you do, if that's you, knowing the heart mo motivation that you're receiving attention and value, You've got to ask God to renew your mind. You've got to come here to renew your mind. So we're going to look at some scriptures. I want to make sure that I got all my examples here first, which I believe I did. Oh, this is another. No one can devalue you. No one can devalue you. God has set a value on you that can never be changed God has set his value on you that can never be changed. No one in this world can devalue you. If we know our value in him, it does not matter how people treat us. It does not matter what people say about us. We know our value in him. So Romans 5.8. Whoa. Romans 5.8. It's a scripture that I think many of us know well. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a scripture we hear a lot. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But do we live that way, that we're living in the revelation of that, that while I was mocking and accusing him and doing all sorts of things, he says, I love you, you have value. Even when we were at our worst points in life, 
in rejection of him, he says, I love you. You have value. God demonstrates his love for us. This is the proof of his love for us, that we did nothing to obtain salvation. He did it all because he said you have value. We need that to renew our minds. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your works has, has not gained any position before the Lord. And if we think that way or act like that way, it's, it's wrong and it's kind of funny. When you actually picture, think about being in the throne room of God. The only reason why we can approach him is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's good news. That's good news that we can't work our way up. <laughs> Amen. And then the last scripture I really want to hit on is Psalm 139. And I'm going to give a little homework. But it's good homework, Marie. Don't worry. She just told me the other day she doesn't like homework. But this is not the homework that you are thinking. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. This is speaking of the attention of God. Attention is what makes us feel valued. We were created. That's not, that's not a bad thing. God created us that way. God designed us that way. That attention would make us feel valued. But the, the problem is we've sought that attention here. And God's wanting to give us this attention straight from the throne room. He sees when you sit down and when you stand up. He saw when you walked into the room. You had his full attention. Who? The king of all kings, the creator of all things, has his eyes on you at all times. And further on in the psalm, it says, How precious are your thoughts to me. How vast the sum. Should I count them, they'd outnumber the sand of the seashore. And the fact is, those thoughts that he has for us are good thoughts. He thinks good things about us. He sees the best in us. He loves the best in us. Even when we're not acting our best, he's still saying, I see a gem inside. I see the value. I'm going to call forth the good. So something I started to do, because I recognized I was so, so in, in engrossed in this thing. Like my identity was completely caught up in what I did. So I said, Lord, I need renewal. I need you to renew my mind. I'm going to wash my mind with the word. But something I started to do a few years ago was that the first thing I did when I woke up is I would ask the Lord, what do you love about me today, Jesus? What do you love about me today? And I want to tell you, it's, he doesn't get tired of telling us what he loves about us. 
And for me, I had a lot of, I had very low self-esteem, even in the way I looked, my hair, my face, like physical features. I thought I was the ugliest creature that was ever created. And it's funny because we create those thoughts, the enemy plants those thoughts, things that people say, blah, blah, blah. So we have a whole baggage here. <laughs> and that the first things that the Lord said to me were all about my physical features. He was, he was just pinpointing. One of them, I'm going to be completely honest, was my nose. I hated my nose. You know, one of the first things the Lord said to me, I woke up and I said, Lord, what do you love about me today? And he said, your nose. I love your nose. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Are you sure you love my nose? Like, I really don't like it. But the fact is, when we hear his truth over and over again and his love washes us, we realize God is not a man he should lie. What he says is true. So if I'm grounded in that truth, no matter what anybody says to me, even if someone came up to me today and said, wow, your nose is really ugly, and started pointing out the faults that they see, I would be so grounded in the fact that, well, God's told me he loved it, and he can't lie. You're a man. You can lie. You can see things all twisted. But God sees me. And he loves me. And that's all that matters. We become confident in his love for us. Confident in the love of the Father. And so this is the homework for this next week and hopefully creating a habit somehow in your life. Whatever you believe would work best for your particular journey or how you, your day goes. Ask the Lord what he loves about you. And if you think, I, had, I did this teaching in Canada, and we had a question and answer time after the whole series, and this one woman said, she was a little older, and she said, I have a question. So you said God tells you something every day. He says something every day, different? And my heart broke for her, because I thought one thing a day, he thinks thousands upon thousands of different things a day about us that he loves so I said to her oh wow like he thinks way even more than just one thing a day he could come up with thousands of things a day that he loves about you that are different and she started to weep and I went and talked with her afterwards to come to find out she had been in such an abusive relationship marriage verbally abusive every day he was telling her what he hated about her how gross she was, how terrible she was. And those thoughts so took over her mind that she could not even receive from God what he loved about her. So I said, let's pray. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. And I prayed, and then I said, listen. And she started laughing hysterically and crying. The Lord spoke something to her, very personal. I can't share it, but he spoke something to her that would minister so deep to her heart that he loved about her. And that began her journey of being confident in the love of the Father for who she is, not because of what she does. This, this first session is foundational for every other session that we're going to do in over the next six weeks. We have to be filled with the love of God to be able to approach and see the other mentalities that we're about to see and look into. So I really want to encourage everyone here today to do this in some way or another, whether you do it today, whether you do it every day, but regularly asking the Lord what he loves about you and realizing when you have his full attention, 
It's all that matters. It fulfills. It satisfies. I'm going to end. Oh, man, I could go forever on these things because there's so many examples. I'm going to end with one last example to kind of hammer it in. So I'm at Street Life, and I was running late for a meeting that we were having. So I'm running through the driveway to the back door to get inside, and I'm passing this area of garbage cans that we had and cardboard and stuff, and there was a piece of trash on the floor, on the ground outside. And as I'm running past, I hear the Holy Spirit say, pick up the piece of trash. And I'm like, I'm late. I don't have time to pick up the trash. Someone else is going to pick it up. And I hear the Holy Spirit again, stop, pick up that trash. And I'm like, it's just a piece of trash. Who cares? Someone else can pick it up. I'm late. Like, I'm going to get in trouble if I'm not on time. So I'm, r- and I, the third time, Wesley, Anna, pick up that piece of trash. And so you're like, okay, fine. So I stop. I go to pick up the trash. As I'm bending over to pick it up, I hear the Lord speak to me, I'm watching you. And I thought, oh, I had this revelation in that moment. There's no one around seeing me doing this, but I have his full attention. And he's seeing me do this. This This is a moment between me and the Lord that no one else will know about. Well, now everybody knows about it because it's my one example I use. Yeah, lucky you. So I pick it up and I think, this is intimacy. I throw it in the trash real quick and I go inside and I thought, no one's going to know about this. This is awesome. That was a memory, a moment between me and the Lord. Sometimes we think intimacy which this is part of it, but sometimes we think it's only sitting in your room with worship music on and journaling, and I love doing that. That's not all intimacy is. Intimacy is anything you do that's kept between you and just the Lord. Anything, any conversation in your mind, anything that you do that you say, I don't want anybody to see, and it changes our perspective. When you come to vacuum the church, You're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to come at 6 a.m. to make sure nobody sees me because I want this to be an intimate moment between me and the Lord where he alone sees it. Do you see the difference? When we're so grounded in his love and those moments we have with God that fill our hearts with joy where we recognize, oh, he sees me. He's, He's here with me. Wow. Incredible how much he loves us. So, again, the homework... Ask him what he loves about you. Even meditate. Read these scriptures throughout the week. You're going to need them. We're going to hit on some hard points that are going to go deeper and deeper. And we need to be so filled with the love of God so we don't get super offended by the rest. (laughs) So, Jesus, we love you so much. God, we're so thankful for your love. Your word says that we love because you first loved us. Lord, we know that you want to pour out your love, that you want us to know your endless thoughts about us. And I pray that this week, God, our ears would be open to hear your incredible love for us, what you love about us individually and uniquely, and that you would show us any place where our identity has become wrapped up in what we're doing, where our value is based on what we do, our talents, our gifts, or any of those things that you would show them to us, that we could renew our minds and become sons and daughters, actually start living like sons and daughters, thinking like your sons and daughters who are incredibly loved by the Father. We love you, Lord, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.